Warning, what you are about to hear can only be classified as real talk. This podcast is not intended for the faint of heart or the status quo keepers. Schools are big places, and regardless of what you do, you know just how real things can get at times. In this space, we will talk about real people, real schools, and real situations, so you know just what to do when things get real. It's Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. Well, welcome back. We are so happy that you have joined us for episode three. We could not be more thrilled with the reception that we've gotten to our our first two episodes of Real Talk. And I got to tell you, we've got an incredible episode for you today, Jeannie. I, I, you know, to think that we are getting to meet with these authors that I know, at least for me and you both, like we we really place on a pedestal. Today is going to be the same thing. Nathan Levinson the author of Six Shifts to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions, is joining us today. I know you've been a big fan for a long time, but I got to tell you, after reading his book, I can see exactly why you like him so much. Just tell us a little bit more. Well, I I can say this. Um, Nathan's work to me is the how. Uh, We talked to Ken, who talked about equity. We talked to Heather and Julie, who talk about high expectations for all students, similar to similar to what Ken was talking about, collaboration between general education and special education. But Nathan gives us the how do you actually start to shift what you're doing in your schools. What's really amazing to me is some of what he says, every, pretty much everything that he says, is um, unconventional thinking that the, the the title of this episode, um, but with the unconventional thinking, um, Nathan Levinson in his schools had unprecedented results. Um, and it is very logical when you hear him talk. Um, he definitely points out some of the things we've been doing for years that haven't been working. And so how do we start to think differently about the way that we structure um, special education in our schools, interventions in our schools. Um, we really only get to talk about the first of the first three of the six shifts, um, but I think it's enough to get us started. And we hope to bring Nathan back to talk about the other three. I got to tell you, when I read the book, Jenny, I honestly felt like I was in church on Sunday morning and the preacher <laughs> was stepping all over my toes uh, because I was reflecting back on some things that I did, not only as a teacher, but as a principal. And there were some things that he talks about. It's almost like a contrarian's guide to how to run a school building because it doesn't follow that conventional path. And you just realize like, gosh, I was doing some things that, you know, made sense from like a a traditional way of doing things, but like looking at it from his angle, it's like, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense. So I think our listeners will get the same experience that me and you have had uh, over the course of reading this book together. I agree. And I know that in the opening of his book, he talks about, he dedicates this book to the dedicated staff and leaders who have worked so hard um, to help kids who struggle. Um, And he says, it's for them, it's for the parents, and it's especially for the students who deserve something better and different. And I think that's what he offers in this book. So we're excited for you to hear what Mr. Levinson has to say. With all that said, Let's not delay the inevitable. Let's get started. 
It's funny how some memories, as insignificant as they might have been at the time, just seem to stick with you for a lifetime. For me, one such memory was learning how to mow grass as a kid. Instead of just a single memory, though, it was more like a made-for-TV miniseries that chronicles a young man navigating the terrain of his parents' yard and learning through trial and error how to apply the best cut to a perfectly manicured lawn. In other words, it was the most boring coming-of-age story you could ever imagine. Keep in mind that I was a young man, though, because otherwise, after what I'm about to tell you, I would probably be required to surrender my man card indefinitely. You see, like most people do, I found a path that I was comfortable with. Essentially, I made a giant box around the yard, and with each pass, worked my way towards the center. And because I'm a creature of habit, every time I mowed the grass thereafter, I could see my last track clearly, and I would duplicate it over and over and over again. It served as a roadmap for every subsequent cut I would make. There was a big problem, though. Because I never gave much thought to the direction the discharge chute was blowing, over and over again, I blew increasingly larger piles of grass towards the middle of the yard. By the time I got to the end of my route, I had a mower dying because of the enormous heap of grass it was trying to plow through and a massive mess to rake up my hand. Probably the most embarrassing part of this entire story is the amount of time it took me to figure out why I was getting the results I was getting. Let's just say it was a summer full of learning. But that brings up a great point so relevant in our field too. Why so often do we continue to use traditional approaches in our schools that have shown us over and over again that they yield less than stellar results for kids? In your mind right now, I'm certain you can think of a few obvious examples. They run a plenty in education. Today, we are going to continue our focus on special education, but we're also going to add an additional layer by examining school-wide systems of intervention as well. Instead of continuing to blow massive heaps of grass towards the center of the yard and causing ourselves very predictable messes to clean up later, we will discuss some alternative approaches that might just yield better results for kids. Buckle up, because today's episode is going to blow your mind. So Matt, your man card, (laughs) do you still have it? Just want to know. I do. Um, I almost had to give it up, but I've not. You know, here's the thing, Jeannie. You got to keep in mind, I was like 15 years old. Um, I, I was dumb. I was young. (laughs) Um, But here's the thing, too. I learned really quickly and um, I probably shared too much in that monologue, but I got to say it it does connect. Right. These silly things that we do that don't work, but yet we do them anyway. um, That's so prevalent in our schools. And so I I think today's episode just hits that all over. Did you at any point realize that this wasn't working like all the times you did it that way or did you just. I don't know. You just liked the extra work of having to clean it all up in the middle. Well, I, I can tell you one thing. I didn't like <laughs> doing that. I didn't love it. Um, you know, here's the thing. I think, you know, ultimately, like I realized that it wasn't working, but it took me a while to figure out how to do it differently. And yeah. so I just kept doing the same stupid thing over and over and over again, getting the same result. And eventually I changed, but it just took me longer than it probably should have. So you were more comfortable doing it the way that you knew how to do it. And you didn't, you had to think a little bit about what would this look like if I did it differently? I think that's such a great analogy. 
because I think that's what's stopping people in schools from changing. It's like, I'm comfortable. This might not be the best way and it might not be working very well, but I'm pretty comfortable in, in this, you know, doing it with this method. And I, because this episode takes us down a path where we have to really think differently about what we do. And it's going to pull, push people outside their comfort zones. If you actually implement the three shifts that we're going to discuss in this episode, uh, the first of the, the first three of the six. So I think your analogy is perfect for that because I've done things like that too, over and over. Um, and just, I was comfortable. I was in my comfort, comfortable place. So I'm excited to kind of hear what people think about this episode and what Nathan has to say. Yeah, I'll tell you, Nathan brings so much experience and his path is is really unconventional too. Like the way that he kind of found his way getting into the superintendency and making these major shifts is not the conventional one. Uh, he spent the last 25 years, really his focus has been on working to improve the lives and outcomes of students who struggle. That's been his passion area. I think he brings a unique perspective as well. Um, and, and so he's worked with school districts all over the country um, and, and, and really has seen this work take off. So I'm with you, Jeannie. I look forward to hearing uh, the feedback from our guests as they listen to Nathan and, and the difference that he's made and these major shifts in practice that don't seem so conventional, but in reality work a whole lot better than what we've done. All right. Well, I am so excited that Nathan Levinson is here with us for this podcast today. I was uh, telling him just a few minutes ago before we started the interview that I have recommended this book, his book, Six Shifts uh, to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions. Um, I've recommended it to anybody and everybody who will listen to me because I think um, it's exactly what he says it is, a common sense approach um, for shifting outcomes in special education. So um, I'm so excited that you're here, Nathan. And before we dive into the six shifts or probably just some of the six shifts, actually, um, can you tell us just a little bit about your background um, and anything you think we need to know? Sure. I think there are a couple things that help put the book and the ideas in context. So the first is I'm old. So I actually went to school before we had IDA. And it's just really fortunate I had a mom who would not take no for an answer. Um, I had really significant speech impediment. People could not understand a word I said. And it was not the role of the school to do anything about that. So about five years of speech therapy. Uh, I talk for a living, so I know how important special education is. It certainly changed my life. Move ahead uh, a few decades, and as as a assistant superintendent for curriculum instruction, as a school board member, as a superintendent, all I saw though was incredibly hardworking people, the hardest working people in any school system, and I saw significant resources going to help kids. But the outcomes just were not what I would have wanted for my son, my daughter, and certainly not for me when I was a kid. And I just wanted to understand why is it that we work so hard, spend a lot, and at the end of the day, aren't where we needed to be, want to be. And that led me on a 20-year journey of studying what works, what's actually worked. And I think 
the biggest and most important thing for folks to know is that I'm a practical person. Everything we're going to talk about today, first of all, I've implemented myself in more than one school district as a leader. And in the last 10, 12 years as a consultant, I work with hundreds of school districts in 30 states. So everything we're going to talk about can be done given all the complexities, given all the laws and all the aggravation that is public education. So well, and I think it's not theory. I think it's funny because that seems to be the first reaction from a lot of people is we can't do all those things. Um, and just the fact that you've done it and it's worked for you because I've read your book, I saw the research or I saw the data mm-hmm. um, and it works. Um, tell us a little bit more about the first shift from special education to general education, because that's something we always try to communicate in our work as well, that students with special needs are general education first. Um, But if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think this is in many ways, the first shift from special education to general education is both the most important and the most paradigm shifting. And I just, I want to explain, I think, how we got to where we are and how well-intentioned folks ended up not in the right place. So, as I said, I started my academic career before we had IDA. Uh, Late 70s, Gerald Ford passes a law. It's a good law. But he was writing a law. They wrote a law about what do you do with kids with the most significant um, disabilities? kids who were cognitively impaired, kids who were blind. And these were kids, and I can remember, it was legal and normal for a public school to say, sorry, mom, dad, your son or daughter cannot come to our school. They've, they're handicapped, that was the term back then. We don't do those kids. And we don't have to send you anywhere else either. And that as you know, morally as repugnant as that was, that was the norm. So they passed a law and said, no, every student is entitled to a free and appropriate education. And so when the first kids with special needs came to public school, they had the most severe disabilities. And it seemed not crazy that a student with an IQ of 50 or um, was in a substantially separate classroom and hopefully had opportunities for inclusion, but that wasn't crazy that the special ed team was the primary instructor. Move ahead 20 years and the definition of special ed has changed dramatically. It's kids with mild to moderate disabilities, specific learning disabilities, kids who are gonna to go to college, kids if you met them on the ball field, you would never know they had a disability. But the tradition of, hey, these kids have special needs and therefore special educators should take care of them. That's why I think that tradition started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had what I call the deal with the devil, <laughs> um, where general educators said, I love these kids and I really believe they do, but I know nothing about them. And I believe that's true too. We know that most general educators who go through teacher college are not taught much about disabilities or teaching kids with disabilities. And at the same time, you've got special educators who love the kids, who really want to help them, who say, okay, I'll take them. And the gen ed teachers say, yep, you're the specialist, you take them. And everybody feels that they're doing the right thing. 
And so I want to acknowledge that this all came out of a historic um, practices and a real desire to help. The problem is that most kids with mild to moderate disabilities, which is what Six Shifts talks about, spend the overwhelming majority of their day in the gen ed classroom. And it's just crazy to think that I'm going to learn to read in the 30 minutes that I might be with a special educator if the, the 90 minutes or 120 minutes that I'm with the classroom teacher isn't the effective instruction that's going to make most of the difference. So the first and hardest shift is to recognize that general education and core instruction matters more than special education for kids with mild to moderate disabilities. Special ed and the extra help, we'll talk about them in the next couple of shifts, but it, core instruction matters most and that we have to get our head around. That's kind of thought one. Thought two is, hey, if we're gonna do that, two things are gonna to have to change. The first is we really do have to give gen ed teachers the capacity and the training and the support to be effective because they weren't taught how to do this. And so I write a lot about in the book and in the districts I've led, invested heavily in instructional coaches. We need to build the capacity of gen ed teachers to be able to better serve kids with disabilities. And now one of my most favorite um, flavors of instructional coaching is to take a special educator who is deeply skilled in pedagogy, who knows about scaffolding, who knows about chunking, who knows to never give a homework assignment with 32 math questions, testing one standard, which now became a test of stamina, not of understanding. And having special educators go into classrooms, gen ed classrooms, not to work with the students, but to work with the teachers and help build their skills around pedagogy, because that is what special educators know really well. That's incredible. I, wow. I just love that so much. And um, we just made a shift in the district that I just retired from, but we made a shift that we were going to have specialists who some of whom were special educators doing exactly that, um, coaching gen ed teachers and how to meet the needs of students with special needs. And I think that is such a critical um, and important shift that we need to start Great. thinking more about. Great. And now let me just share a warning. So when sometimes at this stage in a conversation, people are going to be saying, Oh, I get it. We really need to build the capacity of our gen ed staff so they're better prepared to meet the needs of all their students. Mm -hmm. uh, footnote, if you build their capacity to meet the kids with mild to moderate disabilities, you're also building their capacity to meet the needs of lots of other kids who struggle, who don't have disabilities. So this is a two for one. Oh. But here's the one uh, trap to avoid. A lot of folks, particularly if you're a chief academic officer, at this point, you're saying we need to do more PD. PD is in many districts, kind of the magical elixir. I was literally with a CAO this week who said, you know, if I just had three hours with all the teachers, I could have solved this intractable problem with a really focused PD session. And I wanted to point out to her that intractable problem and three hours should never be in the same sentence. PD generally does not change teacher practice 
in generally does not build skills. Now, PD followed by intensive coaching, yes. Embedded professional development in the moment, yes. But this traditional, bring a guy like Nate in, and I hate to admit it, I get hired to do a lot of it. But I always tell everybody who hires me, this is not going to change your world. But, you know, coming in for a couple hours, talk to teachers and leave and never come back, that doesn't change things. And it actually makes teachers more cynical rather than more capable. So I want to just acknowledge that we've got to build their capacity, but coaching is so much more powerful than PD. Well, Mr. Levinson, I got to say, just even through the first shift, if I could say amen, you know, and not completely interrupt you, I would have already said it like five or six times. It's an honor to have you on our podcast, first of all. Uh, but as we look at the second shift, to be honest with you, I think this was the point in the book where my mind started to just like, if you could imagine that that emoji where the mind's being blown, I think this was the one for me. And, and that is the shift from more adults to more time. I think that stands against conventional wisdom, right? But it just makes sense. Um, I, I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that idea more for our listeners. Sure. Yeah, so this is, I, I will admit this one, I don't know, I, I wanna put this the right way. This one surprises people the most, and yet it doesn't. Get real. We just went through a two-year pandemic where more than half the kids lost more than half of two years. Um, we know they didn't learn all that stuff. So there is a lot to teach kids who are struggling in math or struggling to read. And on the most basic level, the question is, well, when are we going to do that? And I mean... I just walked into classrooms and I would see, and I knew who these kids were. I knew that they were eighth graders struggling with fractions. I knew they were eighth graders who really didn't get, grasp much of sixth and seventh grade. And I'm watching an eighth grade teacher racing through the eighth grade math curriculum, which takes a minimum of 180 days to do. I've never met a math teacher who said, I've got a whole extra month at the end of the year and I got nothing to teach because we finished it all. And all I'm thinking is, when are they going to teach all the stuff these kids don't know? And at the most basic level, if kids have not mastered content and skills from years past, we should teach it to them. And we should teach it to them, which is gonna take time. And we just need to build that into the schedule. Now, what's fascinating to me is at elementary schools, over the last 10 years, I think the wind block or the intervention block has really taken root. More than half the schools I work with, maybe even 80%, have said, hey, if kids are behind in reading, we're going to have some time in the day to give them extra help. But middle schools and high schools, less than 10% of them actually provide extra time. And yet here's the deal. You can be four years behind in eighth grade or have concepts from four years ago that you haven't mastered. Third graders can't be four years behind. They haven't been in school long enough. So like the, the gaps get bigger and bigger, and yet the amount of time drops dramatically. And what did we do instead? And I don't wanna be disrespectful because people care, I, I know that. But they said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna use a shoehorn. We're going to shoehorn into that one math period to adults. And that that's gonna make it so much better. And I'm just, I mean, I've been at this a long time and I don't understand the logic model that says if two adults are in the room, 
I will then be able to teach the material from one year ago, two years ago, and maybe even four years ago, while also teaching this year's material. And what we know from the research, when two adults are in a room, only one of two things can happen. One person talks and the other doesn't. Or if they both talk, meaning the classroom gen ed teachers at the front doing a lesson and the special educator is now talking to a student with a disability, a student can't listen to two people at once. So now I am listening to the special educator, but I just missed the lesson that the rest of the class got. So it just seems a setup for failure, both for the teachers and the kids in so many places. With so many people moving to inclusion with a co-teaching model, I think that's a caution um, that we need to think about. And so tell us more about how can we make co-teaching more effective if people already have it in place? What are some of the things we could think about? Well, so so a few things. So the first is, and I appreciate what you said, but I want to highlight what you said. Inclusion with the co-teaching model. Mm -hmm. This is where I think we got on the wrong track. Mm -hmm. Inclusion is a best practice. Morally, ethically, legally, and academically, it's the right thing. When kids with mild to moderate disabilities are in a special classroom, replacement math, uh, special ed math, it goes by all sorts of names, that's the wrong place to be. It's watered down math, and they're never going to get on grade level. They're never going to catch up. So we did that 10 and 20 years ago, and it was wrong. And we said, hey, we're going to have, we should be doing inclusion, which is right. But in a, in a fair number of districts, they said, oh, the only way to do inclusion would be to bring the special educator out of the substantially separate room into the gen ed classroom. Now, why did we think that? Well, in a lot of districts I've worked with, it's because the gen ed teacher said, I'm not taking those kids. I've never had them. They've always been in the other room. I wouldn't know what to do. And the compromise was, okay, bring a second teacher in who will know what to do. And that to me is really what I call geographic inclusion. We've moved the kid into the classroom, but the responsibility stayed with the special educator. Um, So I am a huge believer in inclusion. It is right on so many fronts, but it doesn't take two teachers to do inclusion. But I have been in a lot of districts where literally the word inclusion and co-teaching are used synonymous, interchangeably. Um, now, what, so what the problem with co-teaching isn't co-teaching. The problem with co-teaching is that it doesn't give any extra time. And so what I have said is, first and foremost, kids who struggle need to get core instruction and they need to get extra time to learn all the things that they haven't yet learned. Now, if you have enough staff to do extra time plus co-teaching, more power to you. And we can talk a little bit about how to make co-teaching even better. But if you do not have enough staff, and often schools don't, if it is one or the other, extra time or co-teaching, the extra time is going to be more powerful. Um, Two thoughts on co-teaching. If you're going to do it, first of all, it is a marriage which means you should only be doing it between two teachers who want to do it, who get to stay together for years where there is chemistry. And the second point is they have to know the content. There just isn't a place for 
a teacher in a math room, teacher in an English room, whatever the course is, if for a teacher who doesn't know the content, quick stories in a district just four days ago, special educator was hearing me rant on a fairly similar topic. And I was a little nervous because she was looking very uncomfortable. And I said, sorry if I'm making you uncomfortable, but I just think it's so important that kids who struggle get help from teachers who really know the content because they're the hardest kids to teach. Like they already learned, they were already taught the material once and didn't understand it. So I need somebody who can teach it a different way, teach it two or three different ways. And she said, no, no, I'm so uncomfortable because I'm embarrassed because just today, just today, she said, a student asked me a question. Uh, it was ninth grade math. She said, I didn't know even what the topic was. So I turned my back to the student and on my phone, I always keep Khan Academy open. And I was trying to do a minute 40 second lesson so I could learn the content so I could then teach it to them. And she said, I knew about 70 seconds in, I wasn't learning enough to be able to teach it to them and we both left pretty frustrated. And that is not a fault of the teacher. That is a fault of a system that has asked special educators to be experts in absolutely everything. And no one is an expert in everything. I'd be thrilled if I could be an expert in one thing, let alone 10 things. Yeah, and I think that leads perfectly into shift three. You kind of, uh, kind of got into this topic already when you think about that shift from a generalist to a specialist and specifically for our students that struggle the most. My question for you as a follow-up to that would be for a principal that like recognizes that, that maybe that's the case right now. They, they don't have the people that are most qualified to support struggling students actually supporting struggling students. My question is what would be the first step for them in terms of shifting their model so that they can get their most qualified people to support those kiddos? Yeah, so I, I think there are a few steps. So the, the, the big concept is kids who struggle need folks who know the content really well. Um, so I think the first and easiest step is look at your special educators and don't care what their certification is. Don't care where they went to college. Some special educators know how to teach reading. Some are very strong at teaching math. Others are very strong at managing behaviors and some just love doing case management. Every district I've been in, there's some of each. Um, if their bosses are not in the room, and I ask them to go to the four corners of the room, if you're a math person, go there, behavior person there, et cetera, they spend like 30 seconds looking around to make sure nobody in authority is in the room, then it takes them five seconds to know which corner to go to. They know their strengths. If you're a principal or a district leader, ask your folks what are they strong in and allow them to specialize. Nothing is more criminal than to have a teacher who is really strong in math, who is being asked to write IEPs when they don't even like it. Um, I think this is a really important connection between helping kids and helping teachers. Special educators are leaving the field in droves. I mean, before the pandemic, 49 out of 50 states reported a shortage. A lot of colleges are reporting a 50% drop in new entrants. I believe that one of the major reasons special educators leave is that every day they're asked to teach something they themselves know they shouldn't be teaching. And imagine if we allowed all of them to play to their strengths. We didn't hire one more person. We didn't hire one different person. We didn't do one session of PD. We just said, hey, you're already good at something, do more of that. 
Um, so that's the first step. Second thing you can do, sadly, every district's got turnover. Uh, so when I was a superintendent, I knew that we lost about 9% of our staff every year. That was pretty typical for the region we were in. And so when I went to hire new people, I actually hired the, the job postings, didn't say special educator. It said special educator to do case management or a special educator to teach reading. And guess what? Nobody applied to both of those. Some people said, I want to be a special educator who teaches reading. And their interview, we literally had them teach a mock lesson of reading. Wow. And we hired in very short order, Special educators, every time one left, we replaced them with somebody who was skilled in that way. And if we needed somebody to do case management, we actually had them review six or 10 IEPs and find the flaws we put in them. So in your, you can reorganize the folks you have, step one. Step two, every time you hire somebody new, hire them for that specialized role. You beat out your neighboring districts because people love it. You get people who will stay, and obviously they're going to be more effective. Then I think the third and hardest thing to do is over time, we do want to have, and no insult anybody, we, we need fewer generalists and more specialists. So when I was superintendent in Arlington, Mass, where we closed the achievement gap between kids with and without disabilities at our high school, for example, by 40 points, when special educators left the high school, one of them left, we, we hired a gen ed math teacher. We didn't hire a special educator at all because I needed somebody to teach five sections of math to kids who struggled. And quite honestly, the best person to do that was, I would have hired a special educator who was as strong in math, but I didn't care about whether they're special ed or general, and I cared about how good they were teaching math. And so a lot of the districts I work with you will see slightly more gen ed teachers, reading teachers or math teachers, and slightly fewer special educators, which is not a terrible thing since we're already down 20,000 special educators in this country over the last 10 years. And what we're doing, because there are fewer special educators, we're not going out and hiring math teachers like I just did. We're going out and hiring paraprofessionals. There are 300,000 more paras in our schools now than 20 years ago. And a lot of them are teaching reading and helping in math. And so instead of moving towards that content strong teacher, we're actually moving in the opposite direction uh, to not a teacher at all. This just seems <clears throat> so logical. And it just surprises me that for so long we've been doing it without thinking about all of what you just said, because I think that's, that's why we have the outcomes we have. So I, I just wonder when, you, you know, you said you implemented all of these shifts in the districts that you worked in. So what, where did you start? Like, where sure. did you start with all of it? Did you start with one thing? People probably just want to know that. Sure. So I think the first thing you have to start with, and this is a, a mistake. Like, you know, you do this long enough. I can talk and sound like I know what I'm doing. I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I will tell you that the folks in Arlington are, are still smarting over some of the decisions I made. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made is focusing on the problems of the current system. Because I mean, I do think you can look at the achievement results, you can look at the spending, and it's easy to say, whoa, this is not working. 
which is true, but just makes people wildly defensive. Um, what I should have done and have done since is first to focus on the kids to say, look, my son or daughter, not what I would have wanted. Second, now more than ever, we just went through two and a half of the most disrupted years of education in a century. That we're going, to, we've got kids with so many kids with so many needs, we do need to think about this differently. So I think the first step is to really be focusing on the needs of students, um, no blame whatsoever. I mean, everybody's been doing the things that I'm basically asking you not to do. So you had a lot of company. Uh, so the first is, let's just acknowledge that by focusing on the kids and not on the past, probably easier to start this work. Second is, I think you want to start with the willing, but you want to start with all three shifts. So I would rather a school or a district say, hey, uh, Matthew's as principal, he is on board with this conceptually. Let's roll it out there. And, you know, Nate's not really there because here's the deal. You can't ask core classroom teachers to focus on core instruction if you don't also have the intervention time. Because then, then you're asking that core teacher, this is how they process this. Whoa, so like you took away the second teacher. So now I'm in charge of everything. And I've got to do this year's material and all of last year's and all the year before. That's a setup. They, they get angry and rightfully so. But imagine if you said to them, hey, we've got this one-two punch. Yes, you are responsible for poor instruction and we're gonna, we will promise, here's a deal I'll make with you classroom teacher. We'll never pull Nate out of poor instruction. So you will actually have all 90 minutes for reading, all 60 minutes for math. It, it's just a setup for failure if, you, if a classroom teacher isn't going to get the ex, knowing that the student's going to get the extra time, an extra time with somebody who knows the content. So having all three of those together is a bargain people can get behind. The other thing you need to do, and this is a systems thinking challenge, you're going to have to change your schedule. Like you won't be able to do the intervention and have enough staff and group kids by area of need and all those best practices. Typically, the schedule has to change. The other piece that will change over time is who you're hiring. Um, lots of districts who go down this path as paraprofessionals leave. Nobody should lose their job ever as a result of anything we're talking about. But paraprofessionals leave every year. You know, staffing is going to have to change over time as well. Two or three paraprofessionals leave, replace the three of them with one reading teacher that's cost neutral. You'll help 35 kids that way. So I, I know people always want to know, what's the one thing I can do? There isn't one thing to do. It is a system. And that is a bummer of a news to share. But I also believe that you need, and when you see a leader, whether it's at a district or a school level, where this makes sense to them. Um, a lot of folks will say to me, Oh, this is common sense, but not common practice. That statement alone says that school's ready to move. Other folks hear what I have to say, and the first thing they say is, it's illegal, or that would never be allowed. Those folks are not ready to move, unfortunately. So a leader who believes in this 
and then you embrace it holistically can make a world of difference. Can you can you tell us how the coaching fit it fits into what you just described? Where, sure. When and how did that happen? Um, so we learned really quickly uh, two things. One, that gen ed teachers are a little nervous about teaching kids with disabilities. I have seen surveys where as many as 80 or 90 percent of teachers, general education classroom teachers will say, I feel ill prepared to teach students with disabilities. Uh, we also know that 40% of all kids in the United States who have an IEP don't even have a disability. They weren't taught to read well. Yeah. And then they get caught up into the special ed system. So I wanted to build the capacity of gen ed teachers to feel comfortable and skilled. And I wanted to make sure they were highly skilled at teaching reading. Uh, so what we did was we gathered every dollar we could by trimming in four or five different places to add instructional coaches that would go into the classroom. The gold standard is one coach for every 20 teachers being coached. Um, they would go into the classroom and model best practices in the science of reading, model how you uh, break down tasks and give instructions that are not you know, five multi-step instructions and uh, the value of writing things on the board so kids can reference back to them, teaching them both the pedagogy and the science of reading at the elementary level in particular, um, really built their capacity. We really saw the kids learning and that was a really central uh, element of our success. And that in Arlington, again, that model we reduced the number of struggling readers by two thirds wow. over about three years. Uh, we went from roughly 65% of our kids reading on grade level um, to well over 95. It was just, it was a night and day. Maybe my, the, the figure that I'm most proud of, we started measuring how many kids who started the year behind made more than a year's growth. Because if we don't make more than a year's growth, you're never going to catch up. Um, as we kind of think about all that you shared today, honestly, I, I'm just, my mind continues to be blown. And I know that our listeners probably are feeling the exact same way. One of the things that I definitely want to highlight is really, we just talked about three shifts. So if, if that's where your mind's at right now, there's three additional shifts in his <laughs> book that are just as good. But we wanted to give you a sample of that today. Mr. Levinson, it's an honor to have you on our show. Really a huge fan. We appreciate you. And just really kind of put it up to you. Like, is there any last thoughts that you wanted to share with our audience? Yeah, so uh, here's how I want to end. If you can leave this conversation feeling there is a road and a path to do better for our kids with disabilities, then this is a success. It's not even critical that you're thinking, hey, I can do this, or even I would know how to do this. But the first step on this journey is to know that there is in fact a better set of strategies. Um, if you're heading in the wrong direction, no matter how fast you run, how hard you work, and how long you do it, you're not gonna get to where you wanna go. And I think that the most important first step for folks is to realize that Many of our past practices, while totally understandable how they got developed, haven't worked well enough. 
and in a post-pandemic world are not going to catch our kids up. Absolutely. Well, I want to just encourage our listeners, if you have not already read Six Shifts to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions, trust me, do yourself a favor, go out, get that book, read it, share it with your peers. It will change kind of the way that you view these traditional structures and ways of doing things in our school system. Again, Mr. Levinson, we just want to thank you really for coming on and sharing your book with us. It has been an honor and we wish you absolutely the very best. We hope we can connect with you again soon. You're very welcome. Let me give one last plug also to uh, New Solutions K-12. My website has a lot more material. You should definitely read the book, but there's a lot of white papers and articles as well available there as well. So it's New Solutions K-12 for even more information. Awesome. I will just add that I was on that website probably a month ago and found some of the most amazing resources. So totally agree with you, Nate. There's some good stuff there. Thanks so much. Today's Practitioner Perspective brought to you by the letter P. The letter P, Matt? Well, I mean, it, it is an alliteration. Uh, okay. It's a stretch, but let's get started. Well, we could not be more excited to dig into this, this, this information that we started talking about with Nathan Levinson surrounding his book, Six Shifts to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions. Jeannie, the second that we decided that this was the episode that we wanted to do, this book was the one that we wanted to dive into. The very first name that came up in my mind was Robert Mountjoy. Robert Mountjoy is the principal at Westside Elementary School in Rossville, Georgia. I've gotten to know him very, very well over the last year. Uh, he is also a Solution Tree Associate, so he does the same work that we do, but he's still a current practitioner in the field in the school. And I gotta tell you, I, I reflect back on a conversation that we had not long ago where he was talking about these massive changes that he was making within the realm of special education. And I just thought he is the perfect person to really enlighten us on the work that he's been doing and connect back to the book that we've been reading. So Robert, I wanna welcome you. And if you don't mind, just tell our listeners just a little bit more about yourself. Uh, wow, man. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Um, so, so yeah, I'm a current principal of Westside Elementary. Um, I'm, I'm principal for about four years. I was three years assistant principal here um, the time before that. My background before that in education, I was a special education teacher in a middle school. Middle school is where my, my heart is before I transitioned to elementary, but I was a middle school guy at heart, still am, love those kids, love that age. Um, and so I was uh, eighth grade is uh, primarily where I taught. So uh, special education, all content areas, and then became eighth grade physical science teacher before becoming an administrator. Robert, I just have to tell you, I also am, was a middle school teacher for 13 years and I'm with you. I don't know what it is about adolescent children that I love so much, but I really do love them. I think we have to be a little like them maybe. Yes. <laughs> I, I think people used to tell me, oh, wow, yeah, that's a, a special person to, to be able to do middle school. That's before I met kindergarten teachers. Yes. They are a very, that you have to be very special to do kindergarten hats off to them. So yeah, I, I was like, no, I, I disagree. Pre-K and kindergarten. Yeah. That, that's, that's where it is. But yeah, I was a middle school guy. 
Well, right. Three's Company, because I was a middle school special ed teacher as well, Robert. So um, we all have that in common. But I also transitioned to the world of elementary and I would never go back. But I, I never could find myself like teaching preschool or kindergarten all day long. That is oh, no way. definitely a special person to do that. But I want to ask you this question. I know that you bought the book, Six Shifts to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions. I know you've been reading it. As you were reading it, I guess my, my question to start this off is, what were some of the big takeaways that you have had as an educational leader as you think about the journey that you all, you've been on in your school? I'm just amazed by how much things have changed in such a short period of time. Um, I just, the, the, I think the biggest change and transition for me uh, coming from compliance and be, being a special ed teacher to being an administrator now, um, we, we, we used RTI in order to, that was what we used to get students on path to become uh, special education or receive special education services. Like that was our mindset. That's what we needed to do. RTI was how we got kids there. The, the shift now is it is used to prevent um, uh, students from, from uh, just putting them in special education. And that was, that was a big shift just in the past, probably five years or so I've noticed um, it was and it for the better. I mean, that, that was probably the biggest change I've seen. Um, and then also, just like I said, going back to compliance, like, um, you know, we, it was just the, the kind of a shoulder shrug of kids are struggling, um, you know, Oh, and by the way, they have ADHD. Well, we, we need to try to give them special education services, whereas now it's like we started looking internally. Like, we didn't do that before. We weren't looking at our practice. We weren't looking at the tier one instruction or grade level instruction. That It just was what it was. I taught it. They need to get it. Like, now is not the case. It is, what can I do to reach this kid? What can I do to individualize the education? Not only students with disabilities, but all students, right? All students. And, um, you know, that, I think that's our goal. And we, we get closer and closer to that each year as we continue to learn as well. So what do you think Nathan's book helps us think about as educators? Um, I know that when I read it, I thought a lot about our own practices and whether they were working or not, first of all, because in a lot of cases, we were seeing the gap just continued between gen ed and special ed. Um, and then tried to think outside the box a little bit, which is what Nathan really urges us to do in his book. So tell me what, tell us what struck you. I think we were, um, I, I just remember all the programs we had, all the different programs we, we had and spent money on. Um, that this was going to be, this was going to be the ticket. This was going to be the silver bullet. We, you know, before we really started looking at our grade level instruction and defining essential standards, um, we, we were using programs and we put them on a program. Oh man. And when we went one-to-one -one technology and like, that was it, we'll put them in front of a screen. Uh, and you know, these programs are great. They're research-based and that might be the case, but there, there is no replacement for just solid grade level tier one instruction. Um, and so I, I started, that was a big mind shift. And we started, we, we, we got to where it was staff over stuff. If we can, if we can look to bring more adults, sharpen uh, or uh, sharpen the tools in their toolbox, provide them the professional development and the tools necessary to provide the instruction, 
and to work collaboratively to do so, um, you know, we, we would see much uh, greater success than we were with these programs that we were just arbitrarily using. Um, that kind of reminds me, Robert, like when I, when I read the book, one of the quotes that really struck me, Levinson said, the number one predictor of achievement for students with disabilities is actually the achievement of students without disabilities. This is true for a classroom, school, district, and even the state. The better core instruction is, the better students with and without IEPs will achieve. And I was just thinking like what you're talking about like aligns perfectly. Talk about your experience though as a principal, like kind of transitioning that thought process in your building to really focusing on increasing the level of tier one instruction. What's been your experience? We, we were, uh, we'd love to pull kids out of class. We had great intentions. Like we had wonderful intentions. We were gonna serve our students. My, my school here uh, in this system is the highest number of economically disadvantaged students in the school system. So we, we have uh, in the South, we call it the bless your heart educators. Uh, they have big hearts. Like I, I always say it's mission work. Like you, you to, to be here, it is mission work because you're much more than that child's teacher. I mean, you, you get to be mother, father, grandparent, whatever the case may be. And so you have to have a big heart in order to do that. Um, but the shift was when, like we really needed to, to kind of take a step back and look at our practice and kind of what we were doing. We, when, a, when a student was struggling, what, what did we do? We put them in a resource setting. They weren't getting the content. They weren't getting grade level instruction. So they weren't getting grade level uh, instruction or standards. They were getting something probably a year or two years back that, that we, didn't want to, we didn't want them to struggle. Um, and so that's kind of where we were when we first kind of started. Um, and then if we got a student out of state or from a, a neighboring system, and if the, if the IEP read, you know, they have this resource setting or small group setting, we would just immediately put them in there. The focus now is when we get a student like that, we don't immediately do that. We put them in a co-teach setting. They're going to be get grade level instruction. The reason we do that, we don't know why they were put in that setting. We don't know this, this state. We don't know, you know, we need to kind of learn the student themselves. I mean, because sometimes students are put in a specific setting because they had a, they had a personality conflict with an adult. And um, and so I don't want to put a student in, in a particular setting, you know, when I, I don't know, you know, or you hear, oh, they're a behavior problem. And like, well, you know, let's let's look into more of that. Let's start here. And so we we started putting uh, students in the general ed classroom and they were getting grade level instruction. So, yeah, we started seeing uh, success in all students. We started seeing not only success academically, but then. Um, we started seeing students with, um, you know, feeling, feeling empowered or, and I think a lot of that had to do with, would be, uh, we keeping them in, in that classroom as much as we can, as often as we can, and then building relationships with their peers. And then all, obviously celebrating all students, um, and their academic success. I mean, we, we, we kind of got away from this idea that we needed to pull, we're just pulling kids out, pulling them out. And then, um, heaven forbid, if you had more than one label, if you were an English language learner, also, um, you know, student with uh, disabilities, or if you were, if you were bullied or had any type of anger, anger issues, I mean, th there was one particular student I know that he, he hit all the trifecta. 
So he had all three of those. So that means he was being pulled with his English language learners from the ESOL teacher. And she would pull them to the best of her ability, you know, based on a schedule. So he was an upper grade student. He's getting uh, pulled with lower grade students. And so he's embarrassed because he's going with the, the younger kids. And then we'd pull him again to go to uh, English language arts or math, that grade level instruction. And, and he wasn't getting what he needed in that. And then when he finally was in the classroom, the guidance counselor would pull him to do her small group, you know, let's be friends lessons. Let's learn how to uh, build relationships with our peers. And I just kept thinking of this one student, like, man, we did, we, we just pulled him out. He's not seen anything and he's further behind. And we're going to expect him to pass uh, a state test when he hasn't seen a, a single grade level standard because he's been pulled out. And, you know, those were great intentions. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone had great intentions, but what we realized is we, you know, our shift of pushing the adult support into the classroom was probably uh, better to serve all students. And so we, we focus more on pushing the adults in the classroom uh, to still provide that same support. And then I saw, we started seeing confidence go up. We started seeing uh, uh, students uh, learning faster rates. We started seeing growth in, in, in all students. And it, it, was, it was a wonderful thing. So I'm just, I'm curious, did you have any difficulty challenges making that shift and if so what, what were they no it was fine it went <laughs> it was it couldn't have went any better <laughs> I can hear the sarcasm in your voice yes ma'am uh, yeah. it, it was uh it wasn't easy when we had what I felt like too many students receiving what I, I called resource setting I took a step back and I went kid by kid and looked at their data we wanted to look at the data. And what did the data say? And so the data said we need to put them in a co-teach setting because they're going to be ex expected to uh, learn like everyone else. They need to have access to, well, they, we, they need to have grade level instruction. They need to learn just like everyone else. We have to provide them that opportunity. Right. No, no questions asked. And so um, that was a shift uh, for, for, um, for everyone. And no, it didn't go, it didn't go well. Um, I had some special education teachers that were wonderful, very knowledgeable. Paperwork was immaculate, very yeah. like compliance, like amazing, but it was a big shift for them. And mm -hmm. and, and it was hard and it took, and it, and it just took, it just took time, you know, continuing to hear the same, um, same reasoning and why this is our why, this is why we do this. Um, you know, it, I would like to say finally for me, they just, they got it. But actually I remember, I remember doing uh, a day during an in-service and it was virtual with Mike Mattis and we had him for a whole day, the system. And I heard him say exactly what I've been saying, which is actually just regurgitating what I've heard him say or what anyone. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when he said it, I remember this one particular teacher, like looking at me like, Hey, I get exactly now what you've been trying to <laughs> Like now it makes sense. And and I was like, awesome. Like, isn't it funny I, how that happens? <laughs> don't take it personal. No, no. I, I was just like, we got there. So I, you know, it's fine. Like, I'm just excited that we got there together. And so, uh, and you know, we didn't give up and uh, you know, she, she understood, but um, Robert, I think I can, I can say this and I know you can too. 
uh, former special ed teachers, right? Like sometimes the greatest resistance that we have actually come from the people like that are supporting those students the most frequently, right? Like special educators sometimes have the hardest time with that because again, you, you love those kids so much, you, you feel like you're protecting them, but in some ways that, that actually transcends into we're not allowing the experience to struggle and, and get access to things that challenge us. We're actually hurting them more than we're helping them when we when we create this learned helplessness. Like it's mm. never it's never been hard for me because the teachers just always made it easier. Plus, I'm getting grades that say I'm doing just fine, right? I mean, that's a whole we could have a whole podcast on oh. that conversation. But oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so Robert, last question for you, uh, and we appreciate you being with us today. Last question though. And, and I, I think this is especially important for you to answer because you are a principal. Uh, so this 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 like goes straight to the point of, of the things that you have to deal with all the time. In the book, Levinson said, in many situations, improving implementation of current efforts is a better next step than starting something new or simply hoping that throwing more staff at a problem might solve it. You know, this seemed especially powerful to me. I, we, we, we have no shortage of initiatives in our field. Like we see them all of the time and they're exhausting a lot of the time right as a principal how do you navigate prioritizing the work so that you are not constantly changing your focus or direction but really just getting better at the things that you say are the most important that's a that's a great question um i i think losing uh it's easy to lose focus i mean because there are so many things out there and and you know like different programs and things that you know we can we could do that you know it's easy to lose focus luckily I'm, I'm i'm fortunate where we have a pretty um strong guiding coalition and you know we we meet regularly and we will love to look at data we love to look at our common formative assessment data uh we use our uh, uh, math assessment data is what we use here to kind of track our students progress and, and and we we're always using that data to make decisions and so what we're trying to do is we're just trying to refine our practice we're just trying to get better at what we are doing and what we know at this point but we know as we continue uh, to learn as educators like our our that that's kind of where we are and kind of stay in our lane uh, i like to say we, we're just we're we're not focused on anyone else we're just focused on our students and, and what we need to do here at Westside Elementary. That's that. great. And I, I just want to give you one place in the in Levinson's book to go dig a little deeper. And that's where he talks about co-teaching because it sounds like you're down that path. But he gives a little warning about it and some things to think about related to making the co-teaching experience as productive as, as possible. So we've been looking at that or we were when I was still there in the district looking at that and um, really thinking about how could we enhance the model, the co-teaching model to be as effective as possible. So Absolutely. just a place for you to look, I'll dig in a little deeper. Thank you. Maybe you have already, I don't know, but. <laughs> well, that's something we can always get better with, you yeah. know, especially like co-teaching. Like, and that was in the, obviously the shift of, no, these are my students. Like, yeah, I'm, I, I take care of the special ed students. You take the regular ed students. It's like, no, these are all our students. Yes. These are yeah. all of our students. 
Well, Robert, I think that you, first of all, are an incredible principal. I've enjoyed, you know, obviously building our relationship as associates with Solution Tree because I know you're doing the right work. I want to thank you for coming on to our podcast and sharing your experience and expertise with our listeners. And uh, can't wait to see the great things that you continue to do. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Well, we have um, another practitioner joining us today, and this is somebody I have had the pleasure to work with. Um, Christina Meister is the principal at Grace Hill Elementary School in Rogers, Arkansas, and she was one of the first principals that I worked with around the inclusive practices work surrounding our book, Yes, We Can, and, um, you know, she she, I think she's not very happy with me because everywhere I am, I talk about how amazing Christina is in front of her with other people around. Um, and she handles it really well, but she has made um, huge progress at her school um, with data. The students are achieving at higher levels uh, than they have before. And I'll let Christina tell you a little bit more about that. But she is the principal who is relentless. She's relentless about what she believes in um, and her staff. She also knows how to really have that mix of, you know, not, not backing down on what's important, but also forming relationships with people, um, trust, all of those things. So she is a leader that I admire and um, appreciate, and she's seen results um, with the way that she leads. So I'm really proud to introduce you to Christina. And Christina, if you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself before we start and get into some questions, that would be awesome. Sure. So um, I started at Grace Hill. Let's see this. I'm going into my fourth year as a principal at Grace Hill. And um, just a little bit about my school. Um, Grace Hill is a school that sits in kind of the center of a small town in Arkansas. I call it a small town. A lot of people think it's a city. I think it's all relative, right? So we live in a community um, that um, very supportive of our schools. Um, we have uh, one of the highest poverty rates in our district. Um, we're about 81% free and reduced lunch. We're about 43% English language learners and about 13% of our students are identified um, as a student with a disability. Um, uh, four years ago when I started at Grace Hill, um, I don't know how other states do this, but in our state, um, we are given a letter grade every year based on our data. And so our letter grade was a D and um, it really is an A to, I think F is the furthest down you can go. Yeah. And so we had some work to do and we knew that we had work to do. Um, one of the first things uh, I was able to do was hire an amazing and assistant principal. And I just think getting the right people on the right seat on the bus is key to moving or making any changes in a building. Um, I believed wholeheartedly in the, um, in the PLC process. I had seen it work in former schools that I had been a part of, and I believed that it was the right work for kids. Um, and what I kind of kept hearing from um, people in the professional learning community that were doing the work and seeing results was the importance of school culture. And so um, that's kind of where we began our journey 
but that's just a little bit about, you know, kind of where we began. And then um, we've been on a four-year journey. We're going into our fourth year and we're not perfect. We have a lot of work we still need to do, but we are beginning to see momentum and some shift in both our culture and our um, school data, which is awesome. That's great. And I, I remember Becky DeFore talking about the work of professional learning communities as a lifestyle change. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a different that you never can you never can stop. You never will stop doing the work. You'll just keep getting better at that lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's where you're at. You're at the point where you've made a lot of shifts, but you know that's what's going to make you great, is you know you have to keep, you know, thinking about where are we strong, where do we need to get better, but we're living that lifestyle forever. Um, right. The consistency piece. And that's what I just thought of when you said that. So after reading Levinson's work, what, what were some of your big takeaways as an educational leader? So I know you read lots of different pieces of his work and dug in a little bit. What, what were you struck by? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that um, I was struck by is just that impact of ensuring all students can read is huge. Uh, so many of our students who are identified with disabilities, it, it is a reading deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's and if it's not initially reading, it at least started with reading. They could have other deficits too, but that's where a lot of their deficits start. And one of the things I love that he talks about is just needing to have, um, make sure that our remediation or our interventions are very tightly connected to our core instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's huge because so oftentimes what we can do is pull them out of that core to give them that intervention. And then you're just creating, you know, another hole, right? And so what we're about is giving that core plus the more. And then in, in addition to that, the, um, the explicit teaching of phonics and comprehension. And I feel like as in our building, we, had, we began the journey with just a really tight focus on the phonics piece. Um, with um, identifying, you know, what foundational pieces were missing for a student in reading and then just filling those gaps and plugging away at that. But where we are now seeing, where we're now seeing kids able to lift the words off the page and read the words on the page, they don't always comprehend everything that they're reading. And so, you know, right now in our journey, that's exactly where we're at. And I think that's why that struck a chord with me is because our kids do need explicit teaching and comprehension. It's not just something that just happens. And I think we take that for granted. Absolutely. Yeah, agreed. And Christina, as you, you know, obviously you've been at, at, at Grace Hill now for four years. So you've seen your school evolve over that time period and for the better, right? One of the things I was wondering about, because Levinson really talks in depth about, you know, special education specifically and how we address student needs. Um, specifically, he says, you know, in ARC meetings so often, we assume that more services means better. Right. But very, very infrequently we, do we discuss what students are missing Correct. when we're pulling them for these services. So I kind of wanted to get your take on that as a principal. What have you seen in your own building and how has that impacted the students? Yeah, I think, you know, for a lot of our students, um, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the the core instruction, you have to have a master schedule or some kind of a system where you're ensuring that students are not pulled out of core instruction to meet their needs. And 
and if you do that, I think what, what ends up happening is you're creating another gap, which is that they don't know how to do grade level um, work and they don't have access to that. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of um, what we try to focus on when we look is not looking at, you know, well, there are special ed students that so we're gonna group all of these students with disabilities into this category and say, all of these kids are gonna get 30 minutes, three times a week for reading, you know, but looking specifically at that student, student by student and looking at what that student's strengths are, what their needs are, and then building a schedule for them almost that really plays to their strengths. Because I think a lot of times we look at it from the mindset of, well, what are the student's deficits? Instead of what is the student really good at and how can we build on that or use that then to be the foundation of how we build that student up with the things they are missing. So Christina, I know that you have celebrated some results for students. Can you tell us a little bit about what those results were and then what you think sure. contributed to, to the increase that you saw? Yeah. So, um, you know, my first year as principal was the year of the pandemic. That's what it's will ever forever be known for. Heck of a time to come <laughs> so, into it. Yeah. yeah. So trying to build a culture and then all of a sudden shutting down everything and having to figure out how are we going to still meet the needs of these students, you know, many of them not having Wi-Fi access, that kind of thing was a tremendous obstacle. I think the good that came from that though, and at least in my building was that we were all struggling together. So we had to rely on each other and it almost built this sense of camaraderie. Like I can't explain it, but it also, it almost formed a, just a bond between all of us that we got through something really hard together and going into our second year, it's like, it gave us momentum to really continue to shift that culture of, you know, a belief that all kids can learn at high levels. Mm -hmm. So um, we did not um, have a lot of data that first year because we shut, we shut down. And so we just keep continued to carry that work into year two. And you know what we saw from that is just an increase in um, both reading and math across the board, third, fourth, and fifth, um, in all subpops. And we um, although they didn't give us a letter grade that year because um, that we were still kind of recouping from COVID. This year we did get a letter grade and we've gone from a D to a high C, which is a lot of work just to move even a point on that scale is moving huge numbers of students in the right direction. And so we're seeing, and I think anytime you get even just a small victory, it's momentum for your teachers, right? To continue doing that hard work. Mm -hmm. um, it's when you're, I, I've never seen a school that just says we're gonna do the worst job we can for kids <laughs> and show up every day to, um, you know, make it harder for ourselves. But I think what ends up happening is that we get in, we get on this treadmill and we're all working so hard. And if you don't start seeing results and start celebrating those results early and quickly, which is something that Jeannie helped me with, because I'm not always good at stopping to celebrate the small wins. Mm -hmm. I think you, you can lose momentum quickly with, with, with a staff and with a team. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that was really important for us is just to find those small wins early on and celebrate the heck out of every single one of those things. Yeah. No doubt. So that's a huge celebration. Do you foresee that this is just going to continue to improve? 
do you feel like the work is just getting better? Yeah. And I think what's happened is that it's teachers, like I'm not always the one leading the work now. It's our teachers that are starting to lead the work because they believe in it. And Mm -hmm. so we've hired, you know, I think everyone across the country has faced large turnovers probably with teachers. And um, so we've done a lot of new hiring. And part of my concern was how can we continue and sustain what's, what's taken place in this building with new teachers on staff. And I got to tell you, my team has really stepped up to take ownership of that work and help bring those people along so that I'm no longer the person leading. I am still leading the charge, but I have a whole team beside me that's leading with me. And um, it's just a good feeling. That first year was rough. (laughs) Yeah, well, you build capacity. And I think that is a key factor in continuous improvement. You can't do it alone. You need to have roving leaders doing the work with you. Christina, I've got like one last question for you, just because I know that we have so many listeners. We have teachers that listen to the show. We have principals and district leaders that listen to the show. And my my question would be, you've really in four years kind of helped transform your school. You said you went from a D to a C plus, which is it may not sound like a lot, but that's a lot. And, and that should be extremely, um, you know, celebrated in your community. But my question would be for somebody that's kind of in the same place that you were in year one, minus the pandemic, what would be kind of your recommendation to, uh, to try to transform the school culture to really value all students and their achievement? What would be that first step that you would recommend to them? The first thing we did is we focused our whole year one was on our vision and our mission. I think a lot of people say that, but I think the difference is having those conversations with teachers. If we believe this and if we say these and and we narrow down just a list of five core values, what is it we all truly believe? And um, those core values became our driving force for having conversations about, okay, what does this look like? If we say kids come first, what does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it not look like? What does it not sound like? And then that's where as a leader, you can begin to start holding people accountable because everyone has said, these are our values. This is what we believe. And so you can drive support for that, but you also have to be willing to have hard conversations when people aren't upholding those core values. And that that's huge. And it's, it's a hard task, but it's a task worth doing. And I don't believe we would be where we are at today if we hadn't started with those core values, had those conversations about what it looks like and sounds like, and then had leadership that was willing to say, okay, we said these things and you're doing X, Y, and Z that does not match this core value. Here's what we need to see you doing. And here's how we can support you. That is beautiful. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's the foundation of a strong high functioning professional learning community is alignment to the mission, vision, core values. Um, and I, I think that that work is what's really driving you forward as a school. So congratulations to you yeah, and thank absolutely. you so much for joining us um, and sharing your story with everybody. Um, you are an inspiration to all of us. Oh, thank you so much. It was a great opportunity. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Christina. As we wrap up our episode today, episode three, and I couldn't tell you, I'm so proud of the fact that we have now had three episodes of Real Talk, where I think we're bringing just an important message to listeners all over the country. Today's episode was incredible. I mean, really, starting with 
with Nathan Levinson and him talking about these these major shifts that I know don't make people feel super comfortable because it's hard to wrap your mind around, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do in my school or in my district? But a message that needs to be heard, that was incredible. But I, I gotta say, Jeannie, listening to our, our guests uh, today as well, just absolutely awesome educators that are doing this work on a regular basis. So Robert and Christina, pr both principals and, and, and bringing that perspective I just think they had a whole lot to share. They absolutely did, uh, Matt. And I um, I think that we have more to talk about with, with Nate because there's so, we just scratched the surface of this conversation, but I think he, he does leave us with some first next steps. And like I said in the introduction, I think, um, I think we 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 tried really hard to kind of talk about the what in our first two episodes and now give you the how in this one. So I think uh, I like the connection between the three episodes with this one really giving you some practical, not easy, but practical next steps um, around what do we do um, to ensure that our students, all students, but definitely our students with special needs are are learning at high levels um, and and this conversation really starts to take us into the how. Yeah, I got to say, if, if you listen to today's episode or any of the previous two episodes and it really resonated with you and challenged your thinking and was a benefit right to your professional growth, we want to just encourage you share with others. It is so important that this podcast be shared with 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 everybody that works in the field of education. And we know the best people to do that are the ones that are listening at home. So please like and subscribe. Uh, share with your colleagues at work. But thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And we can't wait to bring you episode four here in the very near future. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to like and subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode when it drops. Until next time. Stay focused, stay vigilant, but most importantly, keep it real.